I don't have to tell you things are bad. Everybody knows things are bad. It's a depression. Everybody's out of work or scared of losing their job. The dollar buys a nickel's worth. Banks are going bust. Shopkeepers keep a gun under the counter. Punks are running wild in the street. There's nobody anywhere who seems to know what to do, and there's no end to it. We know the air is unfit to breathe, and our food is unfit to eat. We sit watching our TVs while some local newscaster tells us that today we had 15 homicides and 63 violent crimes, as if that's the way it's supposed to be. We know things are bad, worse than bad. They're crazy. It's like everything everywhere is going crazy, so we don't go out anymore. We sit in the house, and slowly the world we're living in is getting smaller, and all we say is, please, at least leave us alone in our living rooms. Let me have my toaster and my TV and my steel-belted radios, and I won't say anything. Just leave us alone. Well, I'm not going to leave you alone. I want you to get mad. I don't want you to protest. I don't want you to write. I don't want you to write to your congressman because I wouldn't know what to tell you to write. I don't know what to do about the depression and the inflation and the Russians and the crime in the street. All I know is that first, you've got to get mad. You've got to say, I'm a human being. God damn it. My life has value. Folks, today on the General Knowledge Podcast, Season 2, Episode 19, I'm joined with Andy, and uh, we have a very special guest on today. I think I alluded that uh, in our podcast we did just on uh, on Sunday with Meryl from the AVN. We uh, we let everyone know, we let the mic drop, and uh, we put it out there that uh, our special guest uh, for this episode is going to be James Corbett from the CorbettReport.com. Uh, it's a really good uh, guest to have on with us. We're going to chat a little bit about his more recent work that he's been putting out, which is the uh, four-part series uh, Bill Gates documentary. So it's going to be awesome to ask James a few questions, get some insights into the documentary as well. And uh, we've had a few of our followers submit some questions. That, uh, we're going to put it there and, uh, and throw them at James. I hope he's okay with that. James, are you with us? How are you, man? I am with you. Uh, thank you for having me on today. Looking forward to it. Awesome. Thanks so much, mate. Now, I've um, took... <laughs> I think I've watched it about three or four times now, this Gates documentary. It's one of those ones I just can't seem to get enough. Uh, and yet every time I hear the, the man's name, I tend to cringe. <laughs> it's just something about him that does I don't know what it is. But uh, Gates himself is uh, just seem, comes off as a very creepy kind of guy. <laughs> um, one of the things I wanted to just ask you, first of all, look, my impression, right, from, from watching this, uh, the Gates documentary, which is, of course, Who is Bill Gates? Which you can head over to thecorporatereport.com and, and watch that one there, forward slash Gates. I'm pretty sure it's that. Now, Gates, to me, comes off as a very kind of awkward kind of guy. Like, he's not, he doesn't come off as a very good speaker. You know, and that seems very evident in all the clips and the audio that you put in there as well from Gates. He doesn't, he, he can't seem to speak too well, yet um, he, he also comes off like he's got some sort of weird passive aggressive personality type as well. I mean, look, basically, in my opinion, he he does come off as though he's not really the one pulling the strings, if you know what I mean. Like like he seems to be doing what he's told. That's the kind of impression I'm getting after I've seen this documentary. Like he's definitely, I guess, in charge of a few things. But 
I, I get the impression that there's definitely someone running gates in the background. I mean, I'd like to get your thoughts on that, first of all, James. Well, I I don't want to get too deeply into the psychoanalysis or ad hominems because they're easy, and I think everyone probably has their own opinions of that. But uh, perhaps, uh, well, the, the, more difficult to document, let's put it that way. But my impression, unfortunately, having had to suffer through dozens and dozens and dozens of lectures and speeches and interviews with this man, uh, and his voice just grates on my it's like nails on a chalkboard for me by this point, having to listen to him speak anymore. But uh, I, I do get the I understand what you're saying. He is sort of an awkward speaker, especially in that he as as many people point out, he, he laughs and smiles at exceptionally inappropriate times mm. when he's speaking about these very gravely important subjects like life will never be the same. We're all going to need to be vaccinated and he's smiling and sort of laughing at weird points while he's saying this, which I think is indicative of something. But then again, as I say, I don't want to get too deeply into his psychoanalysis of someone I don't know personally, but we can take at least some indication from that, from some of the people that he's interacted with over the years who have had things to say about him. One example would be Paul Allen, the co-founder of Microsoft, who did write his own memoir shortly before his his death. And he did talk about Bill Gates and his ruthless nature, which uh, he highlighted, for example, in the story of the point at which he knew that he was going to step away from Microsoft was when he uh, basically overheard eavesdropped in on Bill and uh, Steve Bulmer, his Harvard friend who he brought into the company, basically plotting how to elbow Paul Allen out of the picture or how to make sure his share of the company was even smaller than it already was. And this was not the first time that Bill had been trying to basically angle him out of the company. And he talked about that. He talked about the uh, the controlling and dominate domineering nature of Bill, mm. uh, how even when he was in his teens and still had absolutely he didn't have a company to speak of he wasn't a bigwig at all but he would talk to adults as if he was talking down to them and things like this so there there's definitely that aspect to his personality as to him coming across as someone who is doing merely following orders i don't think that is the impression that i get from his speech i think he likes to think of himself as being in charge and being a boss of some sort i do not think that that is the reality uh clearly when you're dealing with that level of wealth and power, I don't think that that, uh, that happens without people in uh, real positions of wealth and power, the people who literally create the wealth having approved of that in some manner. Um, again, I, I, he's, it's dealing in rarefied circles, and you don't get into those circles unless you're part of the club anyway. So yeah. I, I, don't think, I, I don't think of Bill Gates as the top of the pyramid or he's the mastermind controlling everything. Certainly not. That is cartoonish. Yeah. Um, but I don't think he thinks of himself as taking orders or merely obeying. I think he really, I mean, this is part of his plan and he has helped to bring it to fruition in great detail. And again, if you go back to the 2015 when he started to launch his campaign, essentially, about pandemics and pandemics are going to ruin the the planet and it's going to the thing that would kill millions of people will be a pandemic he's been talking about this for several years and has been preparing and laying the groundwork for that and i think he thinks of this as well this is it you know this is this is the everything i've been scheming towards and here it is and i get to help be in charge of that at any rate the people who are in positions to pull his strings i'm sure are content to let him believe that he is pulling his own strings do you think he's the type of person who looks up 
um, in a fanciful kind of way at the Rockefellers and, and the things that they've done, um, you know, in terms of world health and all that sort of stuff. And I guess the, the real philanthropic money side of using using philanthropy as a tool of social engineering. Do you think he's looked up at them and gone, yeah, I see how they've done it. I'm going to do my own brand of this. Is that is that evident as well? I think so. And uh, again, in the documentary, I think there are a few examples of exactly how that is done. For example, uh, in the 2009 Good Club meeting, as they tried to, to spin it after it became uh, public knowledge, uh, that was co-hosted by Bill Gates and David Rockefeller and Warren Buffett, where they met with other billionaires to talk about how to reduce global uh, population growth. Uh, obviously, Bill was uh, content to work with David Rockefeller in that uh, particular venue. Obviously, the Gates Foundation and the Rockefeller Foundations have contributed to a number of uh, different causes in in tandem, uh, and and both being heavily involved in the global health racket, essentially, is mm. what it is. Uh, uh, obviously, I, I, they couldn't possibly help but cross each other's paths, but the perhaps the most explicit and on-the-record thing that we can document is Bill Gates Sr., who in his uh, book slash memoir that he wrote around 2010, um, talking about how, you know how to, how to live a, a good life kind of thing and how to be a good citizen, uh, he was specifically name checking the Rockefellers uh, in a uh, in a chapter of his book um, talking about um, walking with the giants, and he specifically said that the Rockefellers were there and had been there for years in every field of global health that they turned to and he listed a bunch of things about uh, malaria and tuberculosis and hiv aids and childhood immunization the rockefellers were there and he said that specifically uh, a lesson we learned from studying and working with the rockefellers is that to succeed in pursuing audacious goals you need like-minded partners with whom to collaborate obviously i think the rockefellers are like-minded partners with the gates and that has been demonstrated by the, the various things that they're both uh, involved with. But then he goes on to say, and we learned that such goals are not prizes claimed by the short-winded. The Rockefellers stay with tough problems for generations. So that was definitely something I wanted to highlight in my documentary. I think there is essentially a blueprint, a template that has been left by the Rockefeller family in how to convert uh, monetary capital into social and political capital that can then be spent on essentially conquering the world. And that's why I think now, if I had my druthers, I would really hope people would watch the How and Why Big Oil Conquered the World documentaries before they see the Bill Gates yeah. one, because I think it really is, it's part of a thread, and you really start to see the historical continuity there when you see how the Gates basically took the Rockefeller template and just applied it in the 21st century. Yeah, I'm actually glad you mentioned those two, um, two previous documentaries that you did, the How and the Why Big Oil Conquered the World. I, I love those ones, and I actually bought some of them from you just to, to give to my um, my immediate family members as well. Because I think, like you said, it's some people like to watch these things on a disc that you know that they feel that it's a bit more legitimate if they can put a disc in their <laughs> DVD player and watch it on a TV rather than on some YouTube clip, you know. So um, that's why I wanted to sort of grab... I bought those off you and handed to my parents. But you're right. Um, it's definitely a good lead-up to know that whole background with the Rockefeller stuff in before you start watching the Gates uh, documentary as well. One thing I wanted to just check on, uh, and I can't, I'm racking my brain now, I can't think if you've mentioned it in the actual documentary itself, but Gates stepped down from Microsoft, didn't he? Like, only just recently. Is, is that correct? And, and why do you think that was, if it is correct? Uh, yes, he stepped down from the board. Obviously, the board, he hasn't right. been chairman for, for several years, but this um, past March, I believe it was, he stepped down from the board. Um, 
off the top of my head, I don't remember this the uh, ostensible reason that he gave for for stepping down. Um, uh, I, I I can't remember if it was specifically that he was saying he wanted to concentrate on the the coronavirus crisis or something along those lines. Although I could imagine that was uh, what he was saying. But I I, I think this is just a, a natural progression uh, right. for him as he takes on his new role and helps to sort of whitewash or, or launder his image a little bit further in the public imagination just to get rid of any of those vestiges of this is the same Bill Gates who wanted to monopolize the operating system space and essentially your your computers and rule the world through that as he was well known in the 90s. Now that's almost completely gone, at least in the public mind. Although, of course, a, a bulk of his $100 million plus net worth still comes from his Microsoft stock, which he still owns. Yeah, fair enough. I wasn't sure if um, if that had anything sort of specifically to do with um, this whole pandemic, or if it was just coincidental. Um, would you would it be fair to say that this COVID nineteen, this coronavirus crisis, has been used as a tool by the by Bill Gates or Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, specifically, I guess, um, in terms of instituting this? I mean, is this a case of they just a, you know strike while the iron's hot, or did they? Do you think this was definite um, an elaborate sort of plan to to not just instigate coronavirus? Because I mean, you mentioned in two the, the event two hundred one that was held in I think it was October last year um, with the uh, you know, World Economic Forum as well. Uh, and funnily enough, they use coronavirus as the as the reason for their preparedness drill. Is it is it all just seem to be coincidental, or was it is or is this coronavirus being definitely used as a tool to, uh, I guess, initiate his plans for this sort of you know global domination, so to speak? Well, I mean, I don't have the uh, signed, sealed document from Bill Gates saying, you know, launch <laughs> launch the fake virus or anything like that. So uh, anything that I say is speculative by nature, but uh, we can connect some of those dots, as you say. I mean, for example, Event 201, I think, is the building seven of the uh, of this coronavirus pandemic era that we're living through uh, in that it does stretch the bonds of credulity that uh, in October of 2019, they were holding a pandemic preparedness drill about a spreading novel coronavirus spreading around the globe and how it would affect business and travel and all of this uh, literally at the time where we were expected to believe the novel coronavirus was just starting to spread in Wuhan at least as we are told so again that does seem like a remarkable coincidence <laughs> but at any rate I can imagine a universe without contradiction in which that does coincidentally happen it would probably be one in a billion but hey, perhaps that could happen. Um, at any rate, certainly, as I hope that I laid out in the documentary, all of the infrastructure for the response that we have seen in the past few months was carefully laid over a series of years for this type of event, which, I mean, from my perspective, so far has been 99.9% .9 hype and maybe 0.1% of something um mm. that that uh that should be an actual cause for concern uh Agreed. which actually kind of makes a third possibility not necessarily that this was released as uh, some sort of bioweapon that was released in order just to bring these plants to fruition although that's a possibility but it might not be the case not necessarily that this is just something that naturally happened and oh they're just scrambling to to make heads or tails of it but the third possibility, well, there's something that I guess might be, I mean, there's some sort of no, novel thing that we can identify and, okay, well, let's let's just make this into the thing that 
we're going to use as the as the the, the excuse. So it it doesn't necessarily have to be deliberately released or anything, but just oh here's something and we can test and and uh, positively identify, although false positive more often than not, um, a large section of the population with this new virus that hardly does anything and most people are asymptomatic. We'll just use that as the excuse <laughs> for this. And that that possibility is uh, looking more and more likely as at least so far, this pandemic certainly seems to be a dud. And what yeah. they are saying now, essentially, with the second wave narrative is, look, record new hospitalizations, which actually means, well, people who are going to hospital now that the hospitals are actually starting to open up again, people are going, getting tested, finding that they have coronavirus and, and oh, I didn't even know because I don't have symptoms of it. Uh, you, you'll notice that the laser-like focus on the death count. How many more deaths today seems to have gone to the wayside? Why is that? It's almost as if this record-breaking new wave of hospitalizations and confirmed cases isn't translating into a pile of dead bodies, which is what we were warned about and which was the reason we had to shut down the entire productive global economy. It's, it's, it's nonsense. But as I say, it's carefully planned nonsense that has been in the works for a very long time. So regardless, I don't know, of course, whether this is some sort of intentionally released something or, or what, but it doesn't really matter from the perspective of, are they going to use this to implement their agenda? Of course they are. Yeah, they, they definitely like to, to steer it in their own direction, don't they, in the direction they want it to go. Um, and you're right. I think um, we're seeing now on news reports and stuff, you're right, there's nothing about, it seems to be about death counts and things now. It's purely now about cases they they always use the term oh there's been more cases more and more cases in here more cases there um and you're not going to believe this james but i mean if you i'm not sure if you're familiar with what's really been happening here in australia with regards to the coronavirus and the lockdowns but most of the country was sort of starting to get back to to normal i don't mean the new normal i mean people were sort of getting back to their own normal lives and uh lo and behold the hyped up second wave which we all knew was going to be coming came along now in the state of victoria at the bottom uh, of the eastern part of australia um they are now seeing a, a spike in cases you know and it's like 30 odd cases like it's ridiculous the math has been done and it's a, a very poor figure to say the least um and now, okay, so in America, uh, we've seen how they've been able to fudge the numbers, right? So they, I think it was, what is it, the World Health Organization or the CDC put out, you know, all this information to hospitals saying, you know, be very loose with what you're determining as causes of death and we'll put it, we'll attribute everything to coronavirus, basically, or COVID-19. And then now here in Australia, they haven't really been able to do that with this pandemic, they, they, we've had, you know, if you are to believe the actual numbers, we've only had just over 100 deaths out of 25 odd million people from, from COVID-19. You know what I mean? It's so ridiculous. The whole nation's ground to a halt because of a very, very, very minute amount of people dying, which incidentally probably is all the comorbidities that these people have died from, like every story we've seen from around the world. But now what they're doing, James... The Victorian government, because, like I said, this is the only way they can seem to fudge the numbers here in Australia, because we've got such a small population, the only way to do it is to bribe people to say that they're, they've got coronavirus or to come in and at least get tested, because they know that the more tests they do, the numbers of infections are going to go up, and that's all they want to see. They don't really care about the death side of things like we've mentioned. They just want to see more and more cases. Now, the Victorian government is have come out about a week ago saying... You will receive one thousand five hundred dollars 
if you are uh, if you test positive to coronavirus and if you're a close contact as well so that came out and now the numbers we've just now seen a spike in cases i mean it you cannot make this up james it is they ridiculous. have literally incentivized yep becoming confirmed with the coronavirus which is uh well that that yeah that doesn't surprise me i didn't know the specifics of that but it sounds about right because that shows yes they are interested in getting those numbers up now in the long term of course what that will do is drive down the case fatality rate greatly mm-hmm. to below probably the average flu or at least certainly in line with it um which will destroy the whole narrative of why we needed to shut down the entire global economy and all of this but by that point it will be too late because we will be so steeped into this new normal that people will start to take it uh, for granted. And yeah. uh, that, that I think that crystal crystal clear encapsulation when they are incentivizing people to become confirmed carriers of this viral threat to existential threat to humanity. Uh, I think it shows the, the game that they're playing. Yeah. And I mean, look, and you can't blame people because we, we've had it... Um so tough here lately you know, the amount of people that have lost jobs and you know i mean they are strapped for cash in in some parts of this country james the poor people around here you know i mean of course they're going to throw their hand up and go yeah i'll go and get tested you know i could get 1500 bucks here you know like i can't blame them for going in and and trying to put their hand out for some of this cash because they've lost their jobs months ago you know it's it's pretty tough i mean but i, I to me it seems more like a stopgap solution like they're just trying to delay it like you said the in the long run it's going to bring that death rate all the way down and it's going to make it look really pathetic but in the meantime it seems to be this sort of stopgap solution where they've they've tried to sort of prolong this as long as they can because in my point of view what they want to bring out is this coronavirus vaccine and if this goes away too quickly then it's it's they're not going to get the rollout that they wanted because people are going to wake up to the statistics they're going to they're going to see your gates documentary it's going to do the rounds and people are going to wake up to the real facts that are going on of what this is really about um, and that's that's why i'm saying i think it's just, that that method of the second wave so quickly here in Australia and the reason why they're now paying people to try and get these numbers up is purely just to, to make it look a little bit more worse for a little bit longer, um, just to try and get that vaccine in as quickly as they can. Yes, unfortunately, I do concur with that assessment. Mm. And the worst part of that is that I don't believe that the population has been thoroughly scared enough to really justify the full-on mandatory vaccines and everything that they really want to implement as the, the big solution here, which means that there will have to be this second and maybe third and maybe fourth wave um, to terrify the populace once more. But Unfortunately, if they just use tricks like this, oh, getting more people tested means there will be more positives or false positives, as the case may be. And therefore, we can keep the population worried with some more headlines about number of new cases. But that does wear off after a while. And uh, if they do not uh, manage to achieve the, the, the type of terror in the population that they're looking for, that's where I always worry about the possibility of the re- release of a real bioweapon to mark the second or third waves, the, just as people are letting their guard down. And well, suddenly there's something that's really going around that's actually killing the population. That That's another worrying possibility here. Yeah. Look, I don't doubt that there are you know labs around the world definitely working on creating or, um, you know, just inventing these new diseases and, you know, bird flus and mouse flus and whatever else. But um it, it just seems like it's 
well, like you said earlier, it, this this coronavirus, COVID nineteen, it was a dud. You know, if it was if this was meant to be some sort of bioweapon that was released or you know by accident or whatever, then it didn't work very well because you know no one's dying from this thing. Like I said, twenty five million people here in Australia and maybe only just over a hundred deaths. It, it doesn't add up to me. Um, you know, because mm. we are in this very unique sort of position here in Australia. I wanted to just double check. Excuse me for the people that don't know. You're overseas. You're from Canada, but you're in Japan. Now, Japan's had a very unique way of of going about. <laughs> this this lockdown. I heard you mention it on one of your other um, podcasts, but just enlighten the listeners of mine, if you wouldn't mind, of of how Japan's handling it over there, and what are you what are you seeing in the news and on the ground? And are you are you you know are you swamped with sick people all around you all the time? Are the hospitals full? Like what's what's going on over there, mate? No, we are not <laughs> uh, dying in in mass, and I. Uh, I think that's interesting because a lot of the people here, especially uh, in the sort of English uh, boards of, you know, foreigners living in Japan and that kind of thing, a lot of the discussion for the last several months has been about, oh, they haven't been a lot. They, they haven't done a lockdown. Oh, we're all going to die. Oh, the the hospitals are going to be full in two weeks. You you watch in two weeks. We'll be overwhelmed with sick people. Well, that wave of sick people and the, the overwhelming of the hospital system failed to occur as it did everywhere else in the world. And mm-hmm. in fact, Japan has a remarkably low um, infection uh, rate in, in the general populace and a remarkably low death rate. Although uh, that is also a function of testing because Japan, I think, has, if not the lowest, it's certainly amongst the lowest of uh, testing rate of any of the developed nations. <laughs> so they have found a way to make uh, the the problem not seem like a big problem and it isn't a big problem because it really isn't see this is the this is the logic people think well if you're not testing it means you're not finding the cases there's going to be a huge wave of people but that huge wave never arrived and a huge amount of deaths never arrived so clearly there isn't this mortal scourge that's uh, that's passing through the population right now um and demonstrably so. So Japan has actually acted very strangely in all of this, but perfectly understandably once you know the context of it. At first, uh, they actively avoided any mentioning of the lockdown or anything along those lines because of the Tokyo 2020 Summer Olympics. Essentially, the government wanted to make sure that the games were going to go ahead, everything's fine, there's going to be international visitors, everything's going to go ahead as normal. And they continued with that for a very surprisingly long time until it became painfully obvious that there was not going to be a Summer Olympics this year. Uh, And then as soon as they, literally the day that they postponed the Olympics was the day the Tokyo governor came out starting to warn about a viral hotspot (laughs) developing. Oh, no. Um, But luckily for us here in Japan, the Japanese government does not have the legal authority to really do anything legally enforceable um uh, unless in in terms of confirmed patients or whatever they can quarantine people and blah 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 but in terms of locking down the population closing businesses anything of that sort there is there's really no uh, legal authority for the japanese government to do that so we haven't seen that type of strictly enforced lockdown now there there have been school closures and there have been public library closures and things like that but generally speaking, especially where I am far away from Tokyo and Osaka and the other so-called hotspots, there's been not a whole lot of appreciable difference in day-to-day life here. And at this point, it's mostly just the same security theater that people see, the vi- vinyl curtains in front of the registers and things like that. But at, uh, as I say, there was never any legal authority for the government to actually shut down businesses. Yeah, so you're lucky. I, I love that about Japan, actually. You're, you're in a unique position over there as well because... You know, they've got their own, what is it, a Bill of Rights or something in Japan where um, 
it's they're permitted to well then the government isn't permitted to do these sort of things to the people because the people you know have the power whereas in places like australia and stuff we don't we've just got to basically just bend over and take it from from whatever they want to do to us because we just have no no recourse to, to get back at them Right. Essentially, the government has been saying, well, we can't do anything because it's in the Constitution. Now, mm. no one ever actually points to a specific article in the Japanese Constitution that specifically prohibits that. And as I pointed out in one of my recent videos, actually, there are clauses in there that you could drive a Mack truck through about, uh, oh, in the interest of public s safety, you know, you can do various things. Well, of course, they could just say, well, this is a public safety event, so we're going to we're going to basically close down whatever we want. And they could do that, like every other country has done that, which is just a sign that constitutions and bills of rights and charters of rights and freedoms and all that, that's just paper. It's just paper that the governments will not honor when they don't feel like honoring them. And uh, what are you going to do about it, citizen? Mm. Uh, well, in Japan, the government hasn't taken that route. And I actually think that's part of a political ploy because, as I've pointed out, uh, the prime minister here has been for the past decade or so uh, several years anyway, trying to get the public motivated to actually amend the Constitution, specifically the uh, the uh, renunciation of war in Article 9, which has been a sort of thorn in the side of the, the sort of nationalistic, militaristic uh, faction here who want to get things going again and maybe not recreate the imperial um, <laughs> army and navy, but maybe something along those lines. At any rate, we've got the Chinese threat and the Korean threat, and, well, America's not going to protect us anymore, so we need our own army. So I think a lot of uh, this is circling around the idea of getting it into the public's head. Oh, well, we, we need to change the Constitution if we want to do things like lock down and effectively control a pandemic and, oh, yeah, you know, fight overseas with our allies and things like that. So I think it's a bit of a political ploy. But, hey, it works out in our favor, at least at this point. So I'm uh, I'm enjoying the relative freedom compared to a lot of people around the, yeah, the globe right now. Which is good. Enjoy it while you can. Um, look, I'm, I'm really enjoying the, the conversation. I think Andy's just uh, sitting in the background just soaking it all up, to be honest. Andy, feel free to jump in with a question if you want. Um, I am going to just start throwing, James, if you're okay with it, some of the questions that my listeners have put forward um just here on facebook so i mean field them as best you can feel free to speculate or just give your your own honest opinions but um this one from lisa she just wanted to know in regards to gates i have a question for james in his opinion will gates be successful in his depopulation plans uh, well that's kind of the big question isn't mm. it and thankfully i don't think that's up to gates alone uh, because if it was, I'm sure he would uh, proceed without a moment's hesitation. But it is certainly up to the way that we, right now, shape the narrative around this coming drive for not just the vaccine, although that is clearly a key part of this, but really the entire response to what's going on right now. I think a lot of people feel deep down, deep in their bones, there's something really wrong about this and we're heading in a bad direction. But we have to crystallize that and articulate it in a way that people can rally behind and understand there is a much bigger, deeper, darker agenda at play here than just what we're seeing on the surface level of the news about some pandemic. And unless we can really articulate that for people in a way that they can feel it and understand it and resist and and do things like I, I heard you recently talking about the exercising my rights campaign and things like that. Great. Mm -hmm. Wonderful. Great ways to get people motivated and, and, and educated about what's going on and showing them that you can not comply. If we start complying with this and going along with it, then the new political paradigm, which is this biosecurity paradigm that they're going to try to institute, will come in. And with that comes a lot of 
unbelievably totalitarian things, things that we can barely imagine at this point as essentially human bodies, human society, human uh, companionship itself starts to become demonized. You are a potential spreader of the next contagion and you have to be contained when we say you are contained. Uh, really, totalitarianism on a scale we could barely imagine is right around the corner, which is why we have to put the brakes on this agenda right now. So this Gates documentary was my way of trying to articulate this, especially to people who don't necessarily know about this yet. Uh, there's still a lot of people who don't really understand the deeper uh, story here, and I hope this is a good way of sort of introducing people to that story. Mm, yeah, I know. I know it's hard. You don't have you don't exactly have the crystal ball to look into to see if things are going to be successful. But I've I've got another one of those moments for you right now. Um, Chris would like to know, in your humble opinion, what do you think the world is going to be like in the next ten years? Mm. Well, it's an interesting time frame because, of course, everything coalesces on 2030. And it's not mm. just a UN Agenda 2030 and the sustainability goals, which relates very well to what's happening right now. Uh, but it's so so many different things. There's a China 2030. There's a Saudi Vision 2030. I just wrote in the newsletter just this past week about NATO 2030. They're now coming out with their vision for 2030. There's a lot of very strange globalist um, plans centering around the year 2030. Mm. And uh, I, I question why that is. What is the timeline there? But at any rate, maybe it's just a nice round number that everyone's aspiring towards. But uh, unfortunately, uh, if things continue on the path that they are going down right now, the 2030 mark will end the crossing of the line for the UN Agenda 2030 will essentially mark the closing of the doors on this past era of humanity. And that sounds pretty grandiose, but we are really getting to the point where we are not talking about playing tiddlywinks or, at you know, at worst in previous generations, in previous centuries, in previous millennia, yes, there were dark times where uh, totalitarian regimes stepped in and controlled large swaths of the public and people were under their boot. But there was always the possibility for resistance. That possibility is being systematically removed technologically at this point, where we are going to be not just not just tracked and traced and surveilled, but really controlled at the moment-to-moment -moment level in a way that's hard to even really understand or articulate, but we can catch glimpses of that. One of them that I point to relates to a story that uh, was being shared on, I think it was a Bloomberg report about China and the, the technocratic society they're bringing in. And one of the people there was talking about, oh, yeah, I was I was jaywalking uh, in Shanghai or whatever city he was living in. I was jaywalking and uh, I got a message on my phone about 20 seconds later that uh, my uh, account had just been docked, whatever it was. Yeah. 200 yuan or whatever <laughs> yeah exactly and and it literally just right there just the government can come in and just take money out of your account because the ai uh, cameras and the facial recognition cameras instantly identify you they find your account because everyone's on you know wechat or whatever it is in china and the government can just go in there and take your funds and there you go and that that's that gives you an insight of what life under that regime would look like at right down to the don't cross the street till the light turns green uh, but imagine that on absolutely everything you do, everywhere you go, every every action that you take being watched in that way, not even not even by humans, but by computers that are basically just have functioning on algorithms, let alone, of course, actual real concerted resistance to such a, a regime, which wouldn't wouldn't even be able to form uh, under such a, a sort of totalitarian a technocratic state. So. 
that's unfortunately yeah. that is the vision and 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 the the real long-term vision is to get people herded into more and more combat compact urban areas because for the environment of course because we don't want to um, disturb all that nature whereas of course the the gateses and the billionaires of the world will have their free reign of basically the vast majority of the the globe and monopolizing its resources and making use of that wealth people are basically just neo serfs on the neo plantation uh get given their tiny allotment in overcramped cities and they'll release the little bioweapons here and there to thin out the herd as needed that is the vision of the future unless we resist it now and i want to stress once again this is not written in stone this is not necessarily going to happen it really depends on how how forcefully and how how uh, effectively we resist what's happening right now. At the very least, how how much we practice non-compliance with these rules. It starts with tiny, stupid little things like wearing a mask, but it escalates from there, and it escalates in ways we can barely imagine right now. Yeah, it's funny how you mentioned just before with regards to you know like when you if you do something wrong, then the system will clamp down on you immediately and punish you straight away for it. I mean, it's a scary thought, but I mean, it's it, it we're having it. We're getting a taste of that now. Like it's there's no and there's it, the scary thing about that is there's no recourse. So you can't if you have a complaint or if you think you've been hard done by, too, it's tough luck. Like there's nothing you can do about it. You've just been punished immediately, and that's it. Move on. You know, um, it's similar to if you post something or you do something wrong on social media and you get clamped down or suspended. You know, you can maybe try and appeal that decision, and then it gets knocked back immediately. It's like you're not even dealing with a real person. You're dealing with algorithms on a, on their server or something that's that's doing this for you. Um, and I imagine that that's a similar sort of situation, which it'll be in in the future as well. I guess if it does get to that point. Um, and yeah, we, we've been talking a lot about smart cities here in Australia. There is a big push. Um, if you if you actually, I'll try and find some links and I'll put them in the show notes, but if you head over to tottnews.com and we've discussed it many times on this, on our general, uh, general knowledge podcast, but uh, they are setting up and preparing for a whole bunch of smart cities on the eastern seaboard coming from Victoria down the southern all the way up to near where Brisbane is. Um, and there's going to be basically where all the bushfires were recently, James, um, in uh, late last year and early this year. That's basically where all the smart cities are going to be. Um, so our, our hypothesis is what is that um, those bushfires were allowed to happen. They had, the fuel was built up over time and uh, it was it was a, a tinderbox ready to go, and it it served the purpose of clearing out the land, clearing the the landowners and the people off that land, and trying to now herd, getting them to be herded into smaller smart cities. And there is a project called Clara, um, which is uh, going to be used to set up these smart cities along a, a high speed rail route, which is along that. Um, uh, Consolidated Land and Rail Australia is the name of the project, and they're they're spearheading this thing. So this is a real thing; it's, it is happening, and it's just coincidentally that it was all happening in the exact same places that, that the Australian bushfires were in. <laughs> um, but anyway, I digress there. Uh, one, one, I'll do one final question from Facebook. Um, it's a sort of a tough one, but this Paul is interested to know if uh, people should start taking out their savings. Uh, out of banks in anticipation of the deep recession uh, or the re- or the depression that's coming. Um, I mean, that's a tough question. I'm not sure if you can even answer that one. I mean, sometimes when you when you answer that, you say yes. Well, that then leads to the you know the recession. You know, people mm. banks going bust. You know, because people are taking all their money out. But I mean, it's a tough question. Should they should they start getting into cryptocurrencies? Um, you know, that's that sort of thing. 
Well, uh, that is a good question, and in fact relates to something that I just recorded and will be going up on my site later today, so depending on when people are listening to this. But a question came in from a listener about uh, bank bail-ins and the new laws and regulatory regimes that have been instituted around the world for in the event of the next collapse, they're not going to bail out the banks. They're going to bail in the banks. They're Mm -hmm. going to take the depositors' funds and basically give you a haircut on what you have in the bank. Now, the good news, I suppose, for a lot of people is, well, I don't have anything in the bank. I don't have enough money to to really do anything with my my deposits. But um, maybe that's beside the point. But I think the underlying point is most people don't even know about the bail-in or the regulatory framework that their banks are operating under. And as a result, they are happy to deposit their money in the bank, thinking that they are that they are giving some money to the bank to keep in safe storage, and it's just going to sit there. And yeah, that's, that's how it works. Well, of course, that isn't how it works. Um, you are, in fact, becoming a creditor to the bank. You are loaning your money to the bank when you put money in there. And one of my uh, fundamental things that I've always been interested in is getting our money out of the banking institutions generally, whether for this particular crisis or not. I think just generally, we do not want to be investing in the very uh, financial structure, which is oppressing us. Uh, You are giving your time, your money, your energy, your lifeblood into this system that is designed to milk you and leave you destitute. And uh, I think that's a very poor decision. So there are many different ways that people can start getting their money out and divesting it and trying to do different things with it. Like, I mean, the simplest thing was there was a few years ago, there was a movement in the U.S., the Move Your Money campaign, basically just trying to get people out of the big, too big to fail banks and into credit unions and things that bring the money at least back down to a more local level. But you could go even further than that. You could go into the alternative currencies and complementary currencies. You could go into cryptocurrencies. You could go into precious metals. There was a lot of different ways that you could be taking your money and converting it into something different, at least not fiat dollars issued by some central bank. Um, and I think that is that is part of the long-term solution. We have to withdraw our time, our energy, our money, our investments from the system that is oppressing us. And the banks are uh, pretty good, pretty high on that pecking order, I'd say. Yeah, for sure. Um, I just wanted to also, um, before I wrap up with uh, the final thoughts here, I, my opinion is that a lot of this is really uh, a big distraction, especially when the fact that we started to see a lot of uprisings happening. You know, we saw a lot of that happening, whether they were orchestrated or not, but we started to see a bit of a groundswell happening, you know, in 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 China, in Hong Kong. We saw the people were were you know standing up to to authority basically uh we started to see it a little bit in the u.s as well um and then along comes something else to 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 distract us or to lock us down or they they the system seems to bite back and institute control measures you know like it all seems to be a part of this this backup plan or the, or the just the plan in general that that I like to say the system because it will the establishment, I guess, because you're not too sure really who's in control, I guess. But um, it seems to be when there's a bit of pushback against it, uh, against that, that system, the system does bite back. You know what I mean? So that's, that's one thing, one of my, I guess, my fears, I guess, I would have to overcome in, in terms of trying to work out how we move forward with regards to all this. But setting up smaller communities and getting very much um, more community orientated, um, you know, this, I mean, you've spoken about it, you know, voluntarism and agorism and all that sort of stuff on previous shows that you've done you know, years ago as well. But 
I think this whole grass, getting back to grassroots, getting back to humanity and, and each other is probably the only way to move forward and, and just letting the system know that we don't need them anymore. You know what I mean? Like, it's like that um, that old fable where the, the creature is only there attacking you when you're looking at it, but if you turn away, it goes away, you know. Um, that's kind of where I sort of see the, you know, things happening at the moment. Uh, I don't know if you, what your thoughts is on that, but I mean, does that make sense to you at all? I think the more decentralized the structures that we participate in, the less vulnerable they are to the outside disruptions that you speak of. And that's not to say that in small, isolated pockets of resistance that, uh, the, you know, governments and other powers that shouldn't be wouldn't be able to crush those. Of course they would. But when we have large scale decentralized movements where you cannot identify a single source, you can't identify a leader and they are relatively self-contained, they don't require resources from the outside, then you're going to get real resistance. And mm. the real only real question is how we get from here to there to the point where that's sustainable. Um, and I don't know the answer to that, but I know that one answer that, or the one of the non-answers to that question is to sit here and do nothing. So we have to start trying to build those community organizations and other things that will be what sees us through this crisis one way or another. And I'll put it out here um, just in final thought. Uh, this is not a new idea. This has been around for centuries and centuries. And I say that advisedly because one book that I keep going back to that I want people to read is uh, over 500 years old now. It's called The Politics of Obedience, a Discourse on Voluntary Servitude. Uh, by Etienne de la Boete, who uh, lived in France 500 years ago and was writing at that time about essentially what we are talking about now. There, <laughs> there are tyrants, but there can only be tyrants because people do what the tyrant says. If people do not cooperate, do not obey, the people do have the power over the tyrant. And that has always been true. That continues to be true. That will continue to be true right up until the point that they manage to successfully genetically engineer the human species into something non-human and or institute the total technocratic grid where they just have to flip a switch and the robot armies will take care of anyone who resists. But at least in this moment where we do have the power to say no, to not comply, to stop being obedient, to do things that they do not want us to do, as long as we have this moment of opportunity, it is incumbent on us to use it. And to and to do this now, I hope people understand by this point, we're not playing games. This is not this is not a trial run. This is it. And uh, really, the fate of humanity hangs in the balance. It sounds grandiose, but it is true. Yeah. Yeah. Good points, man. Um, before we uh, before we go, I just want to have a bit of a quick shout out to our boy, Brock West, fellow Aussie you know, um, representing, <laughs> he's, he's your man in the background for the Corbett Report. Um, yeah, we, we love the work that he's doing. And I actually spoke to, to Brock on a podcast years ago when he was still with, uh, still doing the Asia Pacific uh, Perspective. Right. Yep. Um, yeah, which was, which was awesome. Um, so it's so good to see he's doing so well in the realm of independent alternative uh, news media. Um, so we just wanted to um, Ethan Nash from TOTT News, uh, our colleague, he has also interviewed Brock on, on previous podcasts back in the day. So we do have a small connection to Brock and uh, we just wanted to, to, to say well done to him and we hope he's um, we hope he's doing really well for you. Um, <laughs> we, awesome. We, I will definitely pass that along. He is if you could, uh, yeah. an absolute workhorse and uh, best video editor in the biz and uh, without his work on Gates, I mean, such a great, well put together visual feast in that documentary. 
property. So uh, my hat's off to Brock for the incredible work he does. I'll definitely pass along your regards. Awesome. Thanks, man. Uh, Andy, I think you wanted to just um, ask a, a little question before we wrap up our interview with James, mate. You wanted to ask uh, something about Melinda, is that right? Uh, hey, General. Um, uh, yeah, well, uh, I was actually, um, everyone's always focused on Bill, but uh, it seems to me that Melinda, you know, hides hides in the background always. Um, you know, there doesn't seem to be much talk about who who she is or what she is. You know, and it kind of like rings a little bit of a tune with me with the Clintons, you know, like back in the 90s, it was all about Bill and there wasn't so much, you know, focus on, on Hillary. But now we see coming forward 20 mm. years, we see Hillary is really, you know, the power behind that that little family and, um, you know, these agendas. So yeah, I'm kind of like think that maybe a similar thing goes on with um the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, because she seems to be quite well spoken well, she, and quite she's articulate. She's the co-chair too, I'm pretty sure. You know, with Bill, yep. um, so yeah, she yeah. holds just she's as much power, I guess. Yeah, she certainly. Yeah, no, it's a, um, you know. Yeah, yeah, that's a very good observation, and I I think the analogy might be might be apt to compare the Clintons to the Gates and the Gates to the Clintons, and yeah, Melinda might be Hillary. That I, that's a very good point, and in fact, I'm sure that at least some of the direction of the uh, the foundation itself has come from Melinda more specifically than than Bill, um, and I think that is reflected in some of the. Uh, I, I, at at the very least, they certainly put her out as the front for cer- certain parts of the agenda, like in 2012, where they held the uh, the London conference uh, on uh, population reduction or whatever they they called it. They didn't call it that, but it was about 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 reintroducing the idea of reproductive health as the key to what we're doing, um, i.e., vaccines for stopping women from getting pregnant and things like this. Okay, well. Uh, clearly Melinda was the one who was driving that and she was the one making the speeches and she was the one talking about the importance of women. And actually it's funny if you, when you put it in that perspective, I'd say if there's a, a first level of string puller for Bill Gates, it's clearly Melinda. I think she has certainly shaped um, what he does and the way he, that, that he does it in measurable ways. Uh, I think there are probably string pullers above her, but at any rate, I think she's the sort of the first culprit you would look at. Hmm. Yeah, she's certainly she's certainly not the good little wife sitting back um, baking the cookies for when Bill comes <laughs> home from work. Um, <laughs> um, I, I just I'm making some notes, like, and I've always thought this about where we're at, as, you know, in humanity. Like, I think we're always coming to this point where where money and control and and corporate power uh, really supersedes government and. And really, we're we're here now in this kind of like like world where you know the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation and the Rockefeller Foundation and entities like this are certainly surpassed country countries and governments in, in as far as like you know their wealth and and power. You know, so it it doesn't surprise me that we're we're at this point now that we we really really have to make a decision on on which way we're going to go. Um, uh, you know, so I just, um, you know, I take my hat off to you with everything that you did with that video. It was absolutely mind-blowing information and so well put. Mm. But uh, it doesn't it doesn't surprise me at all um, that, you know, as a businessman and an investor, Bill Gates has gone in this direction because, you know, as a, as a business model, 
you know, it's brilliant, really. You know, if if you look at it from a, you know, a simple mathematical like point of view, um, it's it's uh, it's a no-brainer, you know, to head down in this direction. If you're only, um, you know, if your only influence in the world is purely making money and and blow humanity to the to the sky you know like if you don't care about that yeah it seemed I, evident i can see exactly where it's gone it seemed yeah. evident in in the in the gates documentary that you know bill doesn't really care he doesn't give two shits about humanity you know and he no. um yeah he was quoted a few times you know like um with regards to people that might die from any vaccine that comes out you know you you, you stated in the documentary james that he quickly turned the conversation towards you know let's let's focus on the indemnity that we'll give to companies for you know for those deaths you know it was that wasn't anything like oh you know we we feel bad that that might happen it was just that went you know straight to the wayside it was crazy yeah. He's so smirking and like smiling while he says himself. it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know. Andy, so, um, just ask some more questions. Yeah. Right? Yep. Uh, well, I just want to. I'm interested to know, James. Uh, is there any more um, uh, pro- future projects projects coming up? Is there anything in on the uh, the planning chart with with you and your team? There always is. So, yes, <laughs> the only question is what will intervene in the me- meantime? Because, mm. of course, I mean, for example, at the beginning of the year, I sure wasn't thinking of doing a Gates documentary. So, uh, unfortunately, I think we probably haven't even seen the craziest of 2020 yet. I think it's probably going to get even crazier in the fall. Between now and then, I am going to take a little breather and try to recoup and recharge some batteries because I am exhausted from having worked on this and and uh, done all this work over the past several months. And I definitely want to recharge for the fall. Uh, Assuming everything goes back to the old normal and we're all happy again, I guess I can continue going on with some longer-term projects that I've always had in mind, one of which has always been, I've always wanted to do sort of a follow-up to my Federal Reserve documentary on the Bank for International Settlements, which is such an incredibly integral part of the entire financial system and and the way the world really runs that very few people know anything at all about and I think would be fascinating to explore. But you know what? I've just never gotten around to it. So hopefully I will have at some point the time to sit down and actually do a proper documentary on that. But as I say, yeah. there's always things kicking around. I'd love to see the connection between the BIS and, and their plans for future with regards to all this new digital currencies and all that sort of stuff mm-hmm. that we know mm-hmm. they've got in the back burner. That'll be really interesting. Yeah. So yeah. I'd love to, yeah, I'd love for you to do a <laughs> report on that. Um, are you going to make the Gates document? I mean, maybe you have already. I haven't seen But are you going to make the Gates um, four-part documentary series? Series available for for purchase on DVD from thecorporatereport.com? Yes, I sure will as soon as the mail goes back to normal. Uh, I got to the point where I was sending discs out and nine times out of ten they were being returned to me because the mail isn't functioning properly right now. So until that happens, I can't sell DVDs at all. I've actually had to stop selling them altogether. When the things go back to some sort of semblance of normal, <laughs> I will absolutely sell uh, DVD copies so people can get them out that way. Yeah, fantastic. Yeah, it's a good way to support James and everything that you do. Um, mate, just please let the listeners know the best place to uh, to find your work and to support what you do. 
Well, the best place is also the easiest place to remember. CorbettReport.com, C-O-R-B-E-T-T Report.com. It's the one-stop shop for all of my work, all my videos, articles, interviews, everything. And it's all freely available. Um, So I hope people will use it as a resource. There's 13 years of archives there now. And I think a lot of it is even more relevant now than it was when I first put it out there. So I'm quite quite proud of the work that I've done over the past decade plus. I hope people will check it out. And I uh, never, ever, ever ask people to sign up for a Corbett Report membership right away. If this is your first time to the site, just enjoy the site. But if you have been following for some time, some years, then I hope people will uh, sign up and help support the work. Yeah, I've been been following what you do since, you know, I mean, since when you first took over from Bob Chapman doing um, doing his work and you, know, and you took over the international forecast, you know, Back in the day, I've been doing this since 2012 with RealNewsAustralia.com, so I've been, been at it for a long time and I've always followed everything you've done and enjoy what you're putting out. And, um, yeah, you've got nothing but good things to say. I always try and point friends and family members your way. You know, I, I had my parents watching the, the first couple of Gates documentaries out, but it's um, a bit hard for them to watch it on the small screen. I thought I might wait for the DVD to come out. But <laughs> anyway, yeah. um, really appreciate you spending the time with us today, mate. I know you're a really busy, really busy guy. Uh, so thanks again for coming on the General Knowledge Podcast, mate. Um, feel free to, we'll let this one wrap up right now and I'll, I'll chat to Andy in the wings afterwards, but we can call that one a wrap. Thanks again, James. Thank you. Awesome, fifty-four thirty-five. All right, cool. All right, man. Well, I'll, I'll um, send that snippet off to you, or I'll send you a Dropbox link or something, or post it here in the Skype thread for you to download sure. if that's all right. Yep. Awesome. Cool. Thank you so much, yep. man. Um, yeah, bless you, man. I really appreciate everything you do, and that comes from bottom bottom of my heart. And same with Brock too. Really, really loving the work he, he's doing for you. Awesome. Thank you. I'll pass that on right away. Thank you very much, Andy. All right. All right. Take care, yeah, guys. Thanks, James. Yep. Awesome. All right, later, man. Bye. All right, cool. Still recording. Uh, Wow, that was fantastic. Big thanks to to James for for spending the time to come and chat with us. Um, (laughs) I've never been nervous doing this show. That was the first time I've actually been (laughs) nervous doing this show. I've got... (laughs) Out of of all the people I wanted to have on, he is in the top three of people I want to have on on this uh, podcast, man, as a guest. And... (laughs) I was nervous all day in the lead up to this. <laughs> uh, I could I could sense it in your voice. Yeah, I know. I know it was evident. I was trying to cover it up as much as I could and just let James do the talking, but um, yeah, I couldn't help it. It was it was good. I had like a major I had like a major truther Woody for James for such a long time. Like he's a, such a good bloke, you know. Yeah, um, he's a humble. Cool guy. I, I mean, I, I just I just let you guys spitball it because it was just it had such a nice flow and everything was going so cool. Yeah, that's awesome. Thanks, man. All right, good question about Melinda. I'm glad you brought that up because even he was he thought that was a good question too. You know, because she kind of does sit by the wayside and she maybe she is a bit of the dark horse in this. So that that is interesting. Yeah, I, I see her pop up with some like some public speaking roles and and i'm i'm thinking wow here's she's not like you know just sitting in the background supporting bill you can tell by the way she's like handling herself that she's got a she's got opinions she's got deep opinions and directions that she wants to take things all on her own so Mm. yeah i think we should watch that space yeah i definitely get that vibe as well to be honest yeah, definitely. Yeah, yeah. she's um she, again. That's that's why she's the co-chair. You know, like it's 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 the both of them that run this massive foundation and trust. You know, so they're in this together. Um, but yeah, they've obviously got their own little 
side takes on uh, on how they want to run things. So interesting stuff. Yeah. yeah. Uh, well, but, um, more of a more of a. Sorry, man. Did you want to wrap it up? Or no, I was just going to say. I just hope that all our listeners. Um, I didn't. I, there's still in a couple of questions to go, but I didn't want to um, drag it out a, a little bit too long. So I do apologise to the listeners if I didn't get to your question. Um, but for the ones that did, I'm I'm, I'm happy to have asked those uh, on your behalf. So. Thanks again for putting them through. Um, yeah, anything else, uh, Andy, um, for this one? Uh, look, it's just, you know, I mean, we could go on all day and night you know, about <laughs> like why and how and if and what might happen and everything like that. But like, it's just more to my point where like where we are in, you know, humanity with with money and, and like, isn't, isn't money just become such a god? You know, like, like how does anyone like who's an actual citizen of Australia get to like just pick up the phone and talk to Prime Minister like Bill Gates can, you know? Like that's where we are as, you know, in this world at the moment that like unless you've got money and power, then, you you know, like you're going nowhere like in regards to, you know, big agendas and and moving things. But Mm. like it just seems to be the that's that's where it's at. That is just everything is revolved about how much money you got is equates to how much power you've got and how much influence you've got and everything like that. It doesn't matter what good ideas you might have or your, you know, plans for the citizens of a particular country that might be, you know, good or whatever. It's just comes down to cold hard bucks, you know? Yeah. And it's so so sad and so so, it is, and that's so why representative of where we're at. I've gotten, I've started to get this real f- feeling now that yeah. And, and since he put out um, the how and why big oil conquered the world documentaries back then, and now even of course this Gates expose that he's put together, when you hear the word foundation, you like it makes you really <laughs> think to yourself, all right. Who are they controlling? What are they trying to do? It's, it doesn't, to me, it doesn't seem, I don't think the word charity anymore. I think when I hear that word foundation, that's what I think. I think control, I think social engineering, you know, that's what comes to mind when I start hearing these terms. And I really wish that the rest of the world would wake up and, and realize that when they start hearing these big words like Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, Rockefeller Foundation, that they don't think philanthropy, that they don't think charity, that they think control and agenda and you know coercion and manipulation yeah. that's these are the terms that need to come to mind when people hear these things so um in my mind um james is really helping to articulate that point because we really got to be wary of these big foundations um and the agenda yeah. that they have because it isn't about philanthropy it is about social engineering on a grand scale yeah. mm. Yeah, well, I mean, Gates is definitely, I don't know, like it's just such such um, doublespeak to start calling Gates a philanthropist. Yeah. He's just an, he's an investor. I mean, and this is more of the bullshit that's just cast that shadow over the whole thing. Of course, like you said in you the know? documentary, and, and, that he started off with like 50 billion or something, you know, um, a few years ago or recently, and that's now doubled to our, to his worth being over a hundred billion now because of all of the philanthropic um, endeavors the uh, foundation has undertaken, and the Bill and Melinda Gates Trust, which is, runs right alongside it, is is basically handling all of those investments and turning in turning those donations into an income stream for them. You know. Yeah. Yeah, well, it's a business plan, and you know, like, like you keep saying, Australia, it's a business we called, plan. <laughs> we, we called it out from like 
February man. months like, ago. Yeah, just, everything is a business plan, and like you know, and that's 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 where we're going with it all. Mm. And the other point I'd like to make too, in Australia at least, I'm not so sure about US, but a foundation has always been a tax-free platform. You know, so it, it, I think it kind of starts like that. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so let's let's you know, throw so, all the money into this so we can't get touched by tax and. Um, then we can do what we want and get the income back. Yeah. <laughs> You're right. All right, man. Well, let's wrap this one up. It was really good. Thanks for coming on. Um, Pleasure. Yeah, I didn't mean to, to just fully take control of the interview there, but... No, no, no. Don't be so... I wanted to keep... Make sure you wanted him to keep rolling. rolling. Good. Mm. Yeah, when things are rolling good, you keep it rolling, and I could see it flowed well without me chiming in or anything. Other, and, other than um, my nerves, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's, you know what, like with American guests, they talk so fast and like with so much information and stuff too, so especially someone like that who's got like a, you know, such a such a deep spread of stuff. you just got to let them, yeah, exactly. you know, like let them have the floor sometimes. Oh, yeah, for sure. And out. you're right, he's very articulate and, and can pull oh. – can pull that stuff from his brain so quickly it's really good um yeah. that's what i mean like he's this james is next level like anyone who's podcasting and doing what we do i mean like you know james is james is the the way you want to be at you know <laughs> that's the level you want to yeah. see yourself doing and that's that's yeah i kind of hold him in that esteem because that's where i'd like to see myself one day he's doing what he does so anyway, yeah all yeah. the good time we've got to start somewhere i'm so glad that he Yo, was able exactly. to come on and yeah. share our little no, show <laughs> Doing good, man. Cool. Good. All right, Ando, we'll, uh, we'll let it go. And thanks again to all the listeners for uh, for tuning in once again. Um, this has been the General Knowledge Podcast, Season 2, Episode 19, with special guest James Corbett of thecorbettreport.com. Once again, please do throw your support our way. Head over to tottnews.com, realnewsaustralia.com. Of course, uh, make sure you join up with our Patreon as well, especially for Season 3. Heaps of bonus content for Patreon. Alrighty, that's a wrap. Thanks, guys.